0: They're the big two of comics, but sometimes they take a number two. So in the spirit of analyzing DC and Marvel, we're talking about bad moves and problems facing the big two. The byword starts now. gentle nerds. Welcome to episode 175 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris, and this week we are talking about problems that DC faces and problems that Marvel faces. Since I'm the DC guy, I'll be talking about DC Comics. Since Chris is the Marvel guy, he'll be talking about Marvel. But before we get to this wonderful discussion, first it's time for Well, this is going to be an interesting discussion, Chris.
1: My favorite character, uh, at least one of my favorite characters at Marvel Comics, uh, Nightcrawler, has been no stranger to retcons, uh, specifically around his origin and his birth. Um, And at long last, one of the original plans by longtime creator Chris Claremont has come to fruition, and the homophobes have promptly lost their minds. Um, so for those of you that may not know, back in the 1970s, late 70s, uh, Chris Claremont's original plan, um, I should say Len Wein, Dave Cockrum co-created Nightcrawler. Chris Claremont, however, took over writing in the late 70s with issue 94 of Uncanny X-Men. So, so Nightcrawler had his introduction in Giant Size by Wein and Cockrum, but did not have a lot of character flushed out. And Claremont, um... And John Byrne were seen as like formative creators that really filled out the personality of this character and made him popular in the late 70s and full on into the 80s. Um, And so there was a lot of mystery around uh, his birth and his origin. Um, And one of the original plans that Claremont had uh, reportedly is to have the Doctor Strange adversary nightmare to be his father. Um, But that was shot down by Dr. Strange writer at the time, Roger Stern, who then came on to be uh, Claremont's editor in the X office to make sure that did not happen. He said that there was too many uh, connections between Marvel characters and he did not want that to occur. So after that being snuffed out, Claremont's next plan uh, was to have Mystique, the shape-shifting mutant that even... Uh, The normies know uh, to be uh, one of his parents and the other parent to be her lover, uh, Destiny. Uh, Her real name is Irene Adler, and it is all but confirmed to be the Irene Adler of Sherlock Holmes um, fame. And even in one recent X-Men story, it was purported that Mystique was Sherlock Holmes because she has those shape-shifting abilities. So the plan reportedly from Claremont would be that mystique would take the form of a man and impregnate destiny. Um, and those would be his parents. Um, now with a famous homophobe Jim shooter at the editorial and the comics code of authority still being of somewhat, uh, power in power, uh, that was immediately shot down. Uh, Goes on many different times. Uh, You have a really problematic story uh, in X-Men Unlimited in 1994, I believe. Uh, 1995, X-Men Unlimited number four, uh, written by Scott Lobdell, who famously not the best person for marginalized communities or women. Um, but he wrote, quote, it was always Chris's plan that Mystique and Irene Adler, Destiny were lovers and that Mystique at one point had transformed into a man and impregnated Destiny and she gave birth to Nightcrawler. So Mystique and Destiny were actually Nightcrawler's father and mother, end quote. Uh, there's Baron Christian Wagner. That's where we get the Wagner from. That was purported at one point to be his father. Uh, and then you have the much maligned, one of the widely regarded worst comics ever written as the Draco, where you have a demon who for all intents and purposes is Satan to be Kurt's father. And one of the long-standing pulls of the character of Kurt is that he's deeply religious and yet deals with conflict of having the appearance of a demon, but subtext be damned. And we actually make the devil, his dad. Um, and so, at long last, in this past week, as of time of recording this past week's um, X-Men Blue Origins, number one, a one-shot. We finally got the retcon that so many fans have been waiting for, uh, and down to the nitty-gritty of explanation that Michi- Mystique can reshape her DNA uh, completely to take on a male form. She did so, and... She and Destiny were Kurt's birth parents, biological parents, um, and the idiots online lost their minds, even though that was the original plan, one of the original plans, I should say, of Chris Claremont. Um, Suddenly, (laughs) there are uh, sudden experts in sexuality and uh, genetics and biology. Um, It's it's just wild to me. Now, I will say that the issue was far from perfect. Um, more on that in a moment. Um, I had my bones about it, but I'm very glad to see that this is finally the case. And I'm interested to see the storytelling that can come out of this uh, moving forward. Now that we finally have what so many fans have been clamoring for, myself included. I just hope it's under a different writer. <laughs> but yeah, there we have it.
0: Wow. Um as somebody not particularly well well, well versed in like the, the minutiae of X Men fandom, that is uh that, that that's a mess. Um so uh I guess I guess my, my gut reaction is um it's science fiction, get over it. like why why do we have quote-unquote experts in genetics coming out to try to explain to us how something is not possible when it comes to like switching from male to female when on the other hand they got you got people like you know shooting laser beams or concussive beams out of their eyes like where are those people then (laughs) here's 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 the
1: one they had um there was one floating around x twix of the wholesome family unit being ruined now of, wait for it, Azazel, the devil, uh, Mystique uh, in her naked form from the X-Men film franchise, and then a a youthful nightcrawler in his um, Alan Cumming outfit from X2. And that was the traditional family unit that was purported. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you got you got to You got to stop messing with the traditional family of Satan and his children. I mean, come on, those are those are just good family values right there. Jeez, man. Um, so I I sympathize to a great extent with your plight here. Um, it's an interesting story choice, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, that's going to lead to some interesting storytelling, and that's cool. Um, I, I've you know. As a a Doctor Who fan, you know, I continue to go through similar issues. (laughs) Your main character is an alien that can regenerate every cell in his body. He can, you know, swap literal genetic code and become a man or a woman or really whatever he wants. Well, well, it's kind of dodgy, you know, it's random, really. But, uh, you know, when we had our first, you know, female actor portraying the Doctor, uh, we had a very similar situation where people are just coming out of the woodworks and acting like complete, you know. So... Uh, I I sympathize, sympathize with your plight. I wish that people could just tell, you know, stories without, you know, everything becoming somehow about some kind of like, culture war, I need to score brownie points about my political affiliation or whatnot, you know, like just this is an this is an interesting development and uh, i'm sure this is going to have interesting ramifications on kurt because his parentage is you know once again not what he thought it was and and that's going to probably lead to some some introspection and some some conflict and that's really the bread and butter of a good story so you know simmer down everybody I guess I mean again I'm not as embedded in in the fandom as you are so um, it just seems extremely silly to me uh, that that is something that people are losing their minds about online but then most of the time when people lose their minds online it is about silly stuff so
1: for sure now Dave you're going to have to break out your here comes honey boo boo box set huh
0: I don't even know what that is so jokes on you (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, turns out that uh, you know, once again, we're getting a stark reminder that uh, digital media that you own, you actually don't own, but so much license, and that nothing lasts forever. Um, so, uh, according to a Kotaku report, um, uh, Sony recently sent out to PlayStation users who purchased TV shows made by Discovery uh, that uh, basically uh, they're going to have to remove content purchased, uh, you know, through the Sony network uh, that uh, was created by Discovery from their library. Uh, The exact message according to the email was, due to our content licensing arrangements with content providers, you will no longer be able to watch any of your previously purchased Discovery content and the content will be removed from your video library. Um, The message also linked to a page on the PlayStation website listing all of the shows impacted. Um, now we're talking about discovery, so you're not exactly missing the Godfather here. Uh, we're talking stuff like Say Yes to the Dress, Shark Week, Cake Boss, uh, Long Island Medium, uh, Deadly Women. It's not exactly stuff that is the most you know riveting. If you're a fan of any of these programs, good on you. Uh, I'm just not overly uh, familiar, obviously. Um, but I think it is a is a great indicator of of the kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes when it comes to um content ownership and owning content uh, created by these various conglomerates so the uh, purchase of uh you know Warner by Discovery and the new uh Warner Brothers Discovery shamalama ding dong entity trying to get everything in house underneath a you know single umbrella means that uh, they're revoking licenses for their content uh, to, from other content providers and that of course means end users now no longer have access to pr- stuff they've they've purchased. And, you know, I, I hate to be the physical media evangelist yes, yet again, but it's one of those things that has always irked me about the digital distribution model. It's the, you know, the, 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 the corporate overlords giveth and the corporate overlords taketh away. But anytime you read like license agreements for digital content that you purchase outright, uh, it always says that it can be revoked. Um, You know, at any time, and that includes games from from Steam or from from the Epic Game Store that includes, you know, various movies and television shows that you might purchase on the Sony network or from Amazon, you know, at any point, because of some kind of licensing kerfuffle, you could lose access to your content that you have purchased it's very different situation when you're watching something on netflix streaming obviously you you know your subscription lapses you don't have access anymore but things you purchase outright you should have indefinite access to that is the underlying notion i buy this you know i own a copy this is mine you can't just take it away from me but that is not how this digital distribution model ultimately works and why once again uh, although it is very much something on the way out um, you know, come at me, you're not taking my Buffy DVDs, you know, like, you're not taking my, my Farscape DVDs, no matter, you know, what, what licensing stuff is going on behind the scenes, or who holds streaming rights, or who's buying whom, you know, my, my DVDs and Blu-rays are mine. And I, I have them until, you know, until physical, you know, disc rot finally, you know, takes them away. Um, and, and, and I think that that is a, one of the real underlying issues you know, behind the, the digital distribution model. Look, when I'm looking at something, for example, like Audible, which I've spent a lot of time on, again, you know, starting to read, you know, listen to audiobooks more frequently, because, you know, it's it's a good thing to do while you're driving. But, you know, what the ultimate problem with this, this digital distribution model simply is that it reports to be ownership, but it never is. And with Audible, for example, um, you know, you have your subscription, you get your credits, even if you're, uh, membership lapses. Audible maintains your access to all of your audiobooks. So even if you don't have an active membership, what you purchased, you still can listen to anytime you want. And I think that ultimately is something that you know these corporate corporations have to consider if they really want 100% buy into this digital distribution model. You can't just say you're buying this, but we'll take it away anytime we feel like. Like I want to see you know. I want to see Zaslav break into my house and steal all of my DVDs that were, you know, issued by Warner Brothers. Come at me, bro. Uh, you will not be leaving, right? <laughs> so, that is it's just a whole different situation, man, you know, and I, and that's why I'm still, you know, so hesitant with digital. I mean, I use it when I have no choice and you know? like on my Steam Deck, you know, the, for digital games and stuff. And, and Audible, obviously, it's not it's not feasible to, to purchase all these audiobooks on disc. I mean, it's just not, you know, they're just too long. There's too many discs. It's just, it's a mess, right? But there is a bad taste in my mouth because at any time they can revoke access to what, what you have quote-unquote purchased. And that's very distasteful to me, Chris.
1: Famously, uh, Game of Thrones and HBO... Product, um is the most pirated series in in history, and it's 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 so laughable to me that I, I'm telling you what, Dave. I, I'm telling you what, the, the plot thickens of whose new acquisition can be run into the ground faster. Zaslav and and Musk are having a true contest of champions of to who can be worse at their job, and who can have egg on their face as much as as much as they do
0: yeah you're not kidding
1: so i i really think it's such a, an i i'm sorry it's just an idiotic thing to do when piracy and torrenting is a thing like to 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 do things like this like you know like like you said uh tlc content discovery content here comes honey boo boo that that's that's not my cup of tea, my 600 pound life. That's, that's not my viewing pleasure, but God bless if it's yours, but it could be a sign of things to come and completely tone deaf individuals like David Zaslav are going to be the ones that are just saying the quiet part out loud are just out there with it. I think, I think Amazon, um, you know, owns audible. And so I think they're a little bit more, I, I, I'm not going to go up for, a mega corporation, <laughs> but, um, I think they're at least smarter about it. Like
0: I purchased, but even, but even if we're completely honest though, even Amazon is incredibly tone deaf. Look what they just did to comiXology. Like it make it makes me sick to the stomach how they basically completely gutted and destroyed the comiXology app and service to try to integrate it with, with Kindle. And it just, it sucks. It sucks. I mean, that's the, that's the short of it.
1: it. It works fine for me. I don't, I I know a lot of the hullabaloo of, oh my God, why would you do this thing? But like the Kindle app works fine with me with my uh, Comixology unlimited subscription. So like, I'm not as mad about that as other things, but when it comes to like digital purchases, um, you know, I've, I've bought movies on there. I have a content library. Um, I don't foresee any of that. Like, it's not the first thing I do. Like I only, I'm not a big rewatch person. So I only buy ones that I know I'm going to rewatch. Like I've bought Good Burger because I can watch that movie a hundred times and it never be bad. Uh, I always learn something new. Uh, I bought uh, the Spider-Verse films. I bought uh, Mutant Mayhem because I know those are going to rewatch. The kids are going to rewatch. And um, streaming with some of those can be kind of sketchy. But, yeah, I think they're really underestimating the power of the internet, man. like it's just a really, really dumb thing, and it's it's a i I'm just completely baffled by the stupidity of w b discovery
0: yeah, I think that's fair. I will still go to bat for physical media though <laughs> that's just who I am, I guess old school. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Uh, what is your reaction to the retconned origin of Nightcrawler? What are your thoughts about digital distribution? You can find us on social media at Nerd by Word or individually at ThatNerd Dave and at ThatNerd Chris. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, it is time for our big talk. And we're going to dive deep, 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 deep into DC and Marvel and the problems that they face. So stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back, and this week we are looking at problems faced by the big two comic book publishers, DC and Marvel, in this week's... All right, so uh, Chris is obviously the Marvel guy of this outfit, and I'm much more of a DC guy. So we've uh, kind of divided and conquered the situation. Uh, each of us had a, has made a list of three big problems that we feel each publisher currently faces. And we'll discuss them a little bit and maybe a way of to f- uh, how we can fix those problems. And hopefully something productive will come out of this belly aching session. So Chris, what is your first thing that is booking you about Marvel these days that needs to be fixed?
1: Um, I've long been vocal about this and I will continue to be so, but it's a lack of diversity of the creative and editorial helms. Um, when you have your editor-in-chief whose most famous claim to fame is Yellowface um via his pen name. It's I'm I'm sorry, like surprise, surprise that there's a lot of tone deaf stuff that happens when it comes to marginalized communities. I hinted at it with the the Nightcrawler story that released this week. Uh, while I'm happy about the retcon and the end result, there were still a lot of problematic issues. And I've I've been vocal about my issues with that writer before. And I don't want to like yuck somebody else's yum. And I don't want to come for someone's job, but it's a deep problem with how minorities are treated, how LGBTQ folks are treated in comics. Um, and when you look at the creators, even the ones, even the ones that I will follow, like even the ones that like are my faves right now, are white guys: Al Ewing, Jed McKay. White guys, there's not enough people from diverse diverse backgrounds that are being greenlit stuff to make it the big two. And when it comes to editorially speaking, that's why you have um, people uh, from diverse communities constantly having their skin lightened or not looking like they're of of, of African descent. Like it's 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 a true problem. Um, why you have uh, Tom Brevoort, the incoming new editor of the X-Men, scoffing at the idea that Storm's hair texture needs to have a curl to it. Like he said, it's the least of my worries that a black woman has her appropriate hair texture. Um, And so when you have that in the leadership, in the decision-making process, they're the ones that decide which... People get to go on the X-Men. And even you have writers coming on and six of the seven team members are already decided by editorial. It's a real problem. It's a real problem when it's an echo chamber of a bunch of straight white guys play acting like they know how to write for gay characters, like they know how to write for lesbians, like they know how to write for black people. And if you're a creator, you should know your limitations and you should ask for help. But why, why should you when you're just in an echo chamber so yeah that's a real problem um and it it has several other trickle down and ripple effects but the lack of diversity at the creative and editorial helms is probably the greatest problem facing marvel comics as a whole
0: yeah this is this is such a complex issue and i and i will say that i don't think that uh, dc is necessarily um blameless in this particular um you know um uh, issue category as well there's the skin lightning and in, in you know from colorists in particular there should be much better you know editorial oversight to make sure that those sorts of characteristics are realistically portrayed and not constantly you know changed i know damian wayne for example is just like up and down and left and right sometimes with his portrayal it's 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 kind of uh whiplash inducing almost let's say I, I think you you really hit the nail on the head with leadership positions in particular, though. I think um, we're, we're dealing with the same old faces for so long in some of these jobs. These people have been, um, I think you can almost liken it to like career politicians. They're so used to doing the same stuff I, over and over and over agree. again. Absolutely. They can't. Agree. They can't yeah, they can't break free, right? And because of that, we're getting, you know, like what's, what's going on with the X-Men right now, which I know is galling you a great deal where everything's kind of going quote-unquote back to basics, right? Um, it, it's because, you know, new ideas and, and, and fresh blood and, and change is generally not embraced, right? And, and so, I, you know, I wholeheartedly think like leadership generally in these both comic book companies needs a change.
1: Yeah, Dave. I'm very uh, interested to to talk about your first problem DC faces.
0: Yeah, so uh, this 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 one is um, it's going to sound extremely salty, I guess. But as a long time DC fan, there's a little bit of animosity here. Um, you know, generally when you hear, ugh, I'm going to sound so old, but generally when you hear young people uh, talking about DC and Marvel, um, they're they're not really talking about comic books, right? The 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 schoolyard discussions these days are, hey, do you like DC or do you like Marvel? And then they immediately go into like, you know, Endgame was so much better than, you know, Batman versus Superman. Like, So the general perception uh, of this next generation on DC and Marvel is not really being forged in the comic books. Um, the, the general perception, the perception of the gen pop is being um, shaped by the movies. And I think it is fair to say that to a large extent the the dc movies of the last few years have not resonated with the general public and even though marvel is currently in a bit of a slump with the mcu they have built up a lot of goodwill i think towards the characters uh thanks to their cinematic outings so invariably when there is comparison between dc and marvel then marvel is generally coming out more favorably in the newer generations. Uh, In addition to that, I think there is just a big perception issue because of that, right? So if your only experience of understanding the relationship, for example, between Batman and Superman is uh, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, uh, then something like what's going on with Mark Waid's World's Finest book right now over at DC is going to completely not appeal to you because you're not even going to pick up that comic. You're like, well, did, did Batman v Superman wasn't very fun? They're not really friends. I'm sure that comic book wouldn't be a lot of fun. And it is the exact opposite of that. It's probably one of the best books at DC right now. And so I think that the the cinematic output of Warner when it comes to DC characters has basically poisoned the well. And we have an entire generation of people that are coming up as fans of superheroes but not necessarily dc superheroes because they have been poorly represented on the big screen in recent years and i think that uh james gunn and his whole initiative and in trying to like build a new cohesive cinematic dc universe is going to face a real steep uphill battle because of that uh, because there is a perception in the general public that the DC brand is lesser that the DC superheroes are lesser because that's how they've been executed on the big screen in recent years and i think DC is going to face a serious a serious perception issue moving forward for the next few years unless there is a massive change in the kind of stuff that is presented to the general audience cinematically because that that is where the conversation is happening right now about superheroes regrettably. it's it's on the big screen and on the small screen and much less so in the comics. And if the characters don't appeal it, when you know somebody makes first contact with them then they're not going to go seek out the comic books for sure. One of the reasons I even sought out comic books was my contact with the Chris Reeve Superman movie, you know and then uh, Batman the animated series. And, and Batman 9, 1989, those things are what made me go, hey, I like these characters. I'm going to pick up the comic books. Um, and I think a lot of people are not using that path right now when it comes to DC specifically because they didn't find anything particularly appealing about the cinematic outings.
1: Yeah, there's there's, there's so many possible off-ramps that we could take here with with what you just said. And the first one that jumps to mind when you say schoolyard is how deeply uninterested so many kids are in reading. (laughs) Like it's, it's really disheartening. Like, um, you know, talking even to my own kids, like what books are you reading right now? And they're not. And I think there's just such a lack of emphasis. We've put so many, so much on kids plates with this thing or the other, or even the advent of the internet. Why read something when you can just Google it? And I think it's, it's, it's really disheartening for me. Um, but I'll, I'll agree with you. Even when I am looking to read a DC book, it's usually someone that I have not seen on the screen. Like I kind of avoid them because of the bad taste in my mouth from whether it's Batman versus Superman or, um, Wonder Woman 1984, or if it's something like Titans, um, like, cause the, the, the small screen has not been the best, uh, either
0: yeah and and i think that is is going to be a problem for dc a whole generation is coming up lacking the kind of adaptations that you know i had growing up batman the animated series batman uh, 1989 before that the justice league cartoon right these these sorts of things these you know small screen cartoon fantastic adaptations were things that got me in the comics and right now most of the adaptations we are getting are not very good all right, Chris, what is your second problem over DC? I mean, it's Marvel, sorry. <laughs>
1: uh, we, um, we've we talked about this idea quite a bit, um, especially when it comes to Spider-Man, but um, even more so when it comes to X-Men. It's the status quo syndrome, um, and it is directly linked to the editorial issue that I have. We have this very strange process of writing for Marvel Comics where you will have... A two two or three year experimental run and then an immediate regression back to a quote unquote status quo. Um, There may be a reference here or there about the events that just happened in that previous run when a new creator, especially when a new creator comes on board. But there's always this starting point. And so it almost feels like you're trying to grow a garden, but then you're like not letting any light in and it's, it's 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 such a counterintuitive process for me um and and peter parker's story at least when i say spider-man peter parker's story miles is doing great things leaps and bounds making great progress love that for him but peter parker the peter pan syndrome the status quo syndrome call it what you want um and then you know x-men with the the regression to the mean we have these this kind of paradigm shift with house of X powers of 10. Um, and then, you know, upon the exit of Jonathan Hickman, we have a rapid free fall into back to persecution. Um, and every, every single title, even the ones that I've enjoyed, um, with the exception of maybe X-Men red, uh, X-Men red is kind of a standalone type thing. It's, immaculate work but every eccentric centric title since um the mutant massacre and overtaking of work this this latest hellfire gala has a really bad taste in my mouth and it feels really gross um so yeah the status quo syndrome is it to use your phrase is poisoning the well for me
0: how long did the Krakoa era actually last? Like when did, did House of X Power of X come out? When when did that start?
1: 2018, so four plus years, five years maybe.
0: It is it's is it sad to say that in the grand scheme of things, that's not a half bad run for a massive status quo shift? Like that's a really sad that's a really sad commentary on the state of affairs in comic books. But oftentimes if you get a, a run that is like different from the quote unquote regular status quo, um it it's generally maybe like uh a couple of years at best, right? Um but then you know, if you compare it, like when when was when was the first X-Men comic released? Like in the 60s? So you gotta look at how many decades that did the whole that school, you know, that you like so much. Yeah, how long was that the status quo, right? And then why can they only divert from that for a handful of years and then they immediately have to snap back like why can't they do a couple of decades of this status quo and see how it does in the long run you know what i'm saying like it it boggles my mind just because something worked in the past doesn't mean you have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again american comics are really frustrating for that and i almost wished and and maybe that's something that we're going to get with the with the ultimate line Uh, coming at Marvel, but I almost wished that they basically each had two lines. And one line is like, this is the classic setup that you always know what you're going to get. But over here is the line where characters live and die and things progress and are always moving forward and characters age and change and retire and, and really get some forward momentum ones. Because I'd love to see what kind of stories can be told when you're willing to let characters age, retire and fade away and new generations come up, you know? And that is something I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, with DC here in a moment. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's downright depressing. I mean, I feel for you. I Again, I don't have the investment that you do in, in X-Men, but I feel for you because I know the Krakoa era has been a, a, a breath of fresh air for, for many X-Men fans. And the fact that they're bringing that to a close to kind of go back to the way things used to be is sad.
1: Well, I mean, like even things that should be seeds of hope for the future, like bringing Kamala Khan into the fold and having Aman Velani, uh as, as the time recording was just announced that she will create another mini series and she will continue writing, co-writing the character that should be exciting, but it's mired in her running for her life and being persecuted. Like it's so it's, it's so disheartening and like, it's hard to have any kind of hope for, Character or story progression when you're stunted like this.
0: And see, I think, uh, I mean, we had a long discussion about the the Kamala of it all, but I think the equation definitely has changed now for her as a character, right? Like joining the joining the the mutant community when the situation was Krakoa is one thing, right? Um, but it is a significantly different thing. A whole different animal, I think. If you're going back to that school and persecution and sentinels and all that, it's going to be very difficult to maintain that very chipper, bright kind of storytelling that Kamala is known for when she is now being persecuted and constantly has to hide from sentinels. I think we're completely changing the context of what it means for her to join that part of the Marvel universe.
1: All right, Dave, what is the second problem facing DC Comics?
0: Ah, uh, so DC is known as a company of legacy characters, right? Legacy matters a great deal. Characters have, in fact, grown up, progressed, and a new generation has come up. Um, we're talking about, like, you know, here's Dick Grayson. He's the sidekick of Batman. He grows up and he becomes Nightwing, right? Um, and these characters have progressed. We've had people like Hal Jordan and Barry Allen fade away. Wally West became the Flash. Kyle Rayner became Green Lantern. Um, and you had an, another generation even then coming up behind them, right? And you have the Tim Drake Robin. You have Cassie Sandsmark Wonder Girl. You have Impulse and the Flash family, right? Best, best described basically as the young justice generation, right? So you have your your original generation of your Superman people, right? And then you have like the sidekick generation, the original sidekicks like Dick Grayson. Um, and then you have the generation coming up after that, the third generation, basically. It's, you know, the young justice generation. And now we've added essentially another generation to that mix, right, of characters. When you're looking at people like, uh, you know, Superman's son, John Kent, uh, Batman's son, Damian Wayne, they've recently introduced... Uh, a daughter for Wonder Woman, Trinity, I think her name is. And so this is a company built on legacy. Regrettably, because of the, the aging population of writers and editors, it is also a company very much built on nostalgia. And, and that therein lies a problem. So since the company's rooted in nostalgia as well, that means that all these characters from the first generation keep coming back even when they're retired, you know? Barry Allen famously uh, died in Crisis on Infinite Earths, but he's back. Hal Jordan, of course, went uh, Nutter Butter became a villain and then died in the 90s, but guess what? He's back. And so that's a problem because now you have too many darn characters. Uh, and then on the front end, they keep introducing more legacy characters. I mean, we just got this new uh, Trinity character uh, that is supposed to be like Wonder Woman's daughter. So we have this huge library of characters over at DC. And so many of them are not being served. Like just a few years ago, for example, we got Yara Floor, right? Another Wonder Woman. And then they just basically discarded her. And she's like in nothing these days, right? We have uh, Superboy John Kent uh, who has come along now and has been aged up? He was a little boy there for a while, and now that he's aged up, there's really not a, a niche for like super Superboy, right now. Now what's going on there? Now we have two Superboys running around, and and they're really. Not leaning into doing something with so many of these characters, Damian Wayne being Robin now means that they have absolutely no idea or direction of what to do with Tim Drake. So he sits sta- sat standing over there in the corner. They keep introducing more human Green Lanterns, and in the meantime, Kyle Rayner sitting in a corner staring at it, not knowing what to do with himself. Right, and so we have a whole generation now in this legacy setup of characters that are completely unutilized and a huge area of fandom that is not being served at all because they have no place to go to read their favorite characters. Like, I have read a lot of Hal Jordan Green Lantern books, um, and some of them were good and some of them were not. But if you give me an opportunity to read a Kyle Rayner Green Lantern book, I'm going to be there because that was my Green Lantern growing up, you know? Um Right now, the flashbook has bounced back over to Wally West because so many Wally West fans were not interested in reading about Barry Allen. So they're actually trying to tap back into that market. But it is absolutely incredible how whole generations of this legacy setup have just been shunted aside and they're not doing anything with them. And all they really are doing is they keep bringing the old characters back and they're adding more legacy characters on the front end. And it's just, it's very depressing. Like the young justice generation in particular, is completely vanished, and so many of those characters were so integral to my comic book reading experience, and I don't get to see them, like, at all, and that's just a very weird choice to make, I think. You have such a vast library of characters, and you build this notion of legacy into your, your publishing line. And then you just keep discarding the newer characters in favor of bringing the older ones back. And I think that ties very much into like status quo syndrome and the, the, the lack of, you know, fresh blood at the top, because what we're getting in a lot of ways is people reliving their youth, right? They want to bring back the stuff that they enjoyed. Um and, and, and so, Anything that was introduced after what they read when they were kids is just not really relevant to them. And I think that is just such a disservice. Like Tim Drake was the first Robin to carry a solo Robin book. And I think he did for over a hundred issues, right? It's a great character that has been completely, you know, discarded. They tried to recently do a series with him that didn't really resonate with fans and boom, he's gone again, you know? Um, Bendis tried to use them briefly in a, in a Young Justice revival, but you know, the less said about Bendis' time at DC, the better. Um, it's just so many good characters just not being used while adding more legacy characters. That is a huge problem for DC. They keep fracturing the fan base. You know, when you have 10 different Earth-based Green Lanterns everybody has a different favorite, and most of them are not appearing in a book, that's dollars that are left on the table. These are fans that would like to have a book with their characters in it, and they can't buy it. And there's got to be a way to unite those fan bases a little bit and give people some of the characters that they love so much.
1: And honestly, this right here is one of the issues I have with reading DC Comics. I often joke that it's like being reading a DC comic is like being dropped into a foreign country where I don't know the native tongue. Um, and and what brings me to a DC comic is falling in love with a character like Jessica Cruz, like Joe Mulane. Um But then again, like how many, how many earthbound green lanterns do you need? Like you have the entire galaxy to explore the, you know, like give us a cool alien, like Martian Manhunter has some pull. Like, yeah. So I, I fall in love with a character like Yara Floor and I admittedly fell off reading her solo book, um, after trial of the Amazons and falling in love with her. But now I found out that she's nowhere to be found. Like we have an APB out like missing. Have you seen this, this woman? Like that doesn't really make me want to go read the stuff and then just be left out, hung out to dry.
0: Yeah. It's a big problem, man. All right. What is your third and final issue facing Marvel?
1: Uh, some titles are doomed from the start. Uh, Steph Williams just posted about an Ironheart um, solo series that was solicited and everything from Marvel and never released. So make that make sense to me. You have Avengers Incorporated by Al Ewing canceled after four or five issues, and so like it's it's really I don't know if it's writing for the trade or like what's going on but you have titles that are doomed from the start comic book Herald did a great thread on this i encourage you to go look at it of like the distribution model kind of shooting all of this into the foot so if it's not the avengers if it's not the x-men if it's not amazing spider-man then some of these titles are really struggling to have any kind of longevity and you know as we just talked about you fall in love with the character you fall in love with the creative team and the rug's pulled out from under you
0: i think this is a problem that's facing television as well i think that in the past companies are willing to give a creative endeavor the benefit of the doubt and a little time to find its footing and i think that that is is, is that kind of grace to let a book find its audience is is lacking completely like how many months ahead do do are you know do you have to order a book at this point right like two three months ahead right that's what we're looking at like they just did Feb, they did what february solicits just at the end of the last month so almost three months ahead right so by the time issue 1 is released you're already basically soliciting issue 4 right so if by the second issue this book hasn't found an audience then they're doing gonna that. cut it off, at doing, e- they're, they're cut it off at, yeah, they're gonna cut it off at issue five because that's where the trade the first trade would be, right? So like, well, okay, we gave you one trade. But the problem is that the book has only had really one issue, maybe two, by the time you're making the decision to cut it. You haven't even completed a storyline. Um and so no word of mouth never has a chance to kick in. Um people, you know, hearing good things and, you know, being, getting recommended on the book or, you know, like I, I got into ultimate Spider-Man at issue 13. Like I, you know, when, when I finally found ultimate Spider-Man, it was like issue, issue 12 or 13 that I found. Like I was not there for the first year of ultimate Spider-Man that it took a year for the word of mouth on this book to reach me and for me to be, Oh, Oh, I guess I'll read this now. You know? So you think about that. If you're not willing to give a book, you know, the benefit of like 12 issues and time to find an audience. And yeah, that's an investment. And yeah, there's going to be duds, but I am willing to bet a lot of books will find an audience if you give them a chance. The same thing happens with TV shows. You know, how many TV shows get canceled by like the fifth episode and then they just stop airing it and they burn the rest off on some random streaming service. It happens all the time. You go back 20, 30 years and you have generally season commitments being honored, right? And you're like, okay, we're going to give you a season, find your footing. Yeah, you did all right. Not great. But hey, you know, you did well enough. We can try probably give you another season. Let's see what you can do. You know, like a lot of the the great unsung television shows at least got a, a season, you know? Um, and so I think that is a big problem. You're you not letting your fans help you promote a book. You know, you're not letting word of mouth spread. You're not letting water cooler talk, so to speak, start about a book. You're not letting people on forums start discussing a book and really liking it before you already make the choice to to pull the plug on it. And yeah, that is a huge problem. I think we're missing out on some absolute bangers when it comes to comic books and creative endeavors, because the corporate overlords are counting every penny and they're not thinking, uh, you know, in the short term I might take a little loss, but in the long term I can build a huge fan base for something like this. You know, they they're they're thinking very much short term versus long term.
1: And it's incredibly stifling to your creators too, because they have this 10, 12 and, and here's the thing, some of those could very well be agreed upon 10 to 12 issue maxi series or something um and then if sales don't go the way that the publisher wants then that's truncated and that they're they're going back on that agreement so that's incredibly stifling to your creators because they have this 12 issue story that's now truncated to five
0: Oh, I can, I can tell you if I ever had the opportunity to write some, some book starting with an issue one at DC or Marvel, there is no way that I would come in with a Magnum 50 issue opus or something. Uh, you know, I, you very much have to do almost like, um, a season approach, kind of what they did with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Every season had its own big bad, right? And, and, and things kind of, uh, they, can, they progressed and continued, but any season finale could have been technically the end of the show. Like I would have to write like that. Like every fifth issue could basically be the end of the book. because that's what could happen at any time. And, and I think that's that's regrettable, you know because you're missing out on stuff like, you know imagine if Chris Claremont, for example, would have written X-Men in the, in, back in the day like that. Like every, every five issues, he has to wrap up everything. You know, he can't, he can't see things. He can't you know, have long term plot development. Well, it's it's because, the hey, reason. It could be canceled at any any minute.
1: It's the reason that the Dark Phoenix has never translated well onto the screen because you go say, hey, I want to read the, the Phoenix saga. Do you want the Phoenix saga? Do you want the Dark Phoenix saga? Because it's 30, 40 issues. <laughs> like, it's a slow burn, pun fully intended. Like, good luck with that. Um, so I I was just talking about how if it's not the mainstay title, it doesn't really stand a chance, but you have the inverse problem there, Dave.
0: When I was a kid, and again, maybe nostalgic Goggles, maybe not, um, Justice League was the book. It, it was the, the nuts, big idea, epic, every time around book. If you wanted epic sci-fi superhero storytelling, you went to Justice League. That's just how it was. And I'm not just saying that because Morrison, uh, you know, relaunched JLA with the big seven and all that, even after, um, even after Morrison was not on the book anymore, you had a, a rotating cast of some really good writers and artists coming in and continuing the exact same sort of trend. Um, and there's a reason that that volume of justice league JLA fills like 17, 18 trade paperbacks it's incredible. It's just good across the board. You know, even when there was a stinker story somewhere, there they recovered and and put it back together, and they were always epic. They always shot for the stars. It was my favorite book on the stands for that reason. And it should be the top book at DC. It's got it all. It's got Superman. It's got Batman. It's got Wonder Woman. It's got you know space. It's got you know planet-wide destruction. It's got huge stakes. It's supposed to be the biggest, most epic book. So I am really sad to say that no matter how often I have tried to read a Justice League book since that volume of JLA, it never clicks and this is not just me being like, just bring Morrison back kind of guy. Like, you know, I'm not, I, I like Morrison's writing a great deal, but I also think once Morrison has said what he has, to, what they have to say that, uh, you know, they move on and do something different and, and, and good on them for doing that. Right. But it's just, it's like there is a, a some kind of crucial ingredient missing on the justice league book. And I, I don't understand why we keep not getting it right. Um, there was that relaunch with with uh, novelist Brad Meltzer writing, and there was one good story arc in there, The Tornado's Path, and then the whole thing just disintegrated, and suddenly Meltzer was gone. Um, you had Jeff Johns doing a run on it, and that whole thing was basically... Um, you know, a justice league for the new 52, which was so weird and uncomfortable. Like they work together, but they're not really friends and they don't really, they can't really stand each other. And they're all young and jerks. Like, like that should have be, been the tagline for, for new 52 are superheroes, but they're young and jerks like that. That probably would have summed it up pretty well. Um, and I know, I think Scott Snyder did a run on it and I kind of just dropped off of that very quickly Bendis came in and tried to do Justice League and it did not click at all. Um, there was that time period where they split Justice League into like three different books. There was like Justice League uh, Odyssey where there was part of the team was in space and there was Justice League Dark where like Wonder Woman was working with the magical heroes. And there were some interesting ideas there, but by splitting all of the you know big players in, of, of the Justice League into separate books, you're missing that interaction and Like, what the heck? Like right now, there is no Justice League book. Like they literally were like, you know what, we're just going to take some time off and we're going to let the Titans just like be the big Earth defenders. Like no Justice League. How about that? Goodbye. And I'm like, I just want a good Justice League book. And it feels like it's been 20 years since we've had one. And I'm not and I don't mean to sound disrespectful to the creators that came in and tried to, you know, write good Justice League stories. It's just it it always feels like there's just something missing. Can we just get like the biggest names of the DC universe together and just have big, epic, crazy science fiction stories? Like why is that the most difficult thing for DC to do? The Justice League should be the easiest book to sell. The Justice League should be the easiest book to get writers interested in writing. Here are the seven biggest heroes we have. Go nuts. Why why is that so difficult for DC to do? This should be their premier book. I, it's just, it's very frustrating that of all the things. Justice League. Justice League never seems to hit the mark.
1: And it's funny because that's one of the things that you lauded um Jet McKay's Avengers for when we read that first issue, is it felt like a JLA book, and it feels like with Avengers and I'm, I'm not like someone who's immediately drawn to read an Avengers book. I've, I've read Hickman's Avengers. I read, um, a a title here or there. It's not like the one that draws me, but it always seems like it's a focal point at Marvel. Um, no matter the roster. So like, even if you wanted to have this evolving roster, like the fact that it's not a focal point is, is wild to me as an outsider.
0: And the thing is, too, like Avengers, as a book for most of its history, was never these are our biggest heroes together in a team at last. Like, I mean, you had you had Wasp and, and Ant Man on the team, right? Uh, this was never like these are the big guns of our publishing line. And we were putting them all together. That didn't really happen until Bendis was like, "Hey, I'm going to put Spider Man and Wolverine on the team." You know,
1: it was it was focal. It's focused on the relationships.
0: Exactly, but Justice League was always like, these are our biggest guns, these are our greatest heroes, and these are the biggest threats and And for that, the book was always crazy, full of ideas and epic. At least that's how I grew up with the book and and those things are just not clicking, and I just I, it, it's it's kind of it's beyond comprehension to me somehow, you know. Like, of all the things, even when Justice League wasn't the biggest book with the biggest characters and the most epic thing, you had that great Justice League International run that was so full of humor and heart. You know, like, Justice League is just a brand that screams quality, you know? And for some reason, that's the one book that DC just can't get right. And I'm I'm sitting here and I'm waiting, man. I'm just waiting for a good Justice League book. It's, it's my favorite team book Ever is one of my favorite cartoons. Justice League, Justice League Unlimited. I just want a good Justice League book, and you're exactly right. Jed McKay's Avengers is the best Justice League book currently on the market. It is, it is, is beautiful and epic and and smart and and full of big ideas. I love it. It's, did, you it's see, like, did you
1: see? Did you see? I think it's issue three or four. I don't know how much you've read, but there's a villain. I finished that
0: picked- the first. I finished the first arc. So, where it has arc. like
1: the villain that takes over the vatican and it's like this biblically oh God. accurate biblically accurate what an angel would look like like it's so yes, cool it's great. so cool
0: it it is so good like they even the way they like paired off the individual avengers with like these individual villains and how they interacted with each other was just so smart and it, again it's very much sort of a justice league feel like we're we split up at the beginning of the story we take on these individual threads and by the end of the book we all get together you know it's just it's the best. It's it's really ridiculous that the best Justice League book on the market right now is the Avengers.
1: All right, Dave. Before we've been negative Nancy's today, so give me something positive. Some some wellspring of hope that that keeps you happy at DC
0: currently. The entire Superman line is slapping, even when they're making. I need decisions to get caught find,
1: up so bad.
0: Even even when they're making decisions, I find baffling, like how they're kind of changing Power Girl around right now. There is there is so much. Love for DC lore and for Superman lore that is just sprinkled throughout everything that is coming out of the Superman office right now. I just I love it. I I cannot stay away from the Superman books right now. Um, and and then anything that anything that Wade has been touching has been just gold. I think World's Finest right now is doing like a revisiting of of, of one of the great DC stories, Kingdom Come, where like quote unquote our Superman and Batman. Are in the kingdom come universe and and i kind of you know witness the stuff that happens in that alternate future and it's been really good too like wade is just firing on all cylinders even if there's a healthy dose of nostalgia lacing a lot of his stuff it is very very good so between the superman office right now and 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 what wade is doing i'm super happy with that stuff how about you at marvel
1: uh I kind of hinted at it, but I'm following creators now, less so characters. Um, I feel like that's that's the way to go, especially with this return of status quo. Like I'm I'm going off word of mouth, and then following creators that I know are going to tell me a good story, no matter what. So for me, right now, and I, as I said, it's problematic that it's two white guys. Um, I'm I'm waiting for Marvel to tell me something. I I I'm, I'm desperately wanting to dive into Eve Ewing's new Black Panther run. I've heard great things about that, so I'm excited to try that one out. Um, but but right now I'm wherever Al Ewing and Jed McKay go, I follow. Whether that's Avengers, um, you know, with Ewing, X Men Red has been like another magnum opus for him. Immortal Thor. We've talked about the fruits of that to a great degree. Um, and then what, what McKay's done on Moon Knight, I'm still binging through that is, is probably a, a top three Marvel book that I've read in the past 10 years. Like, Again, it's wild to me. Um, and I, I love mythology. I love Egyptology. It's uh, ancient history has always been the draw to me when it comes to history. And so kind of seeing that weave through there with like elements of horror has been fascinating. Um, and then to be honest, the biggest thing that I'm most excited for is this new ultimate universe that we just dedicated an entire episode to, uh, last time together. So, um, there, there are, there are some things that I'm definitely looking forward to.
0: All right, folks, there you have it. What do you think are the big problems at the big two publishers right now, DC and Marvel? Uh, you can find us on social media at nerd by word or individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. We'll take a quick break, and then we're going to bring you some new nerd commendations. So stick around. (music) Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, we're back, and it's time for the fan-favorite segment where we recommend something nerdy that we have encountered and we love. We call it our... Chris, how in the world are you recommending something to me involving Godzilla? <laughs> how did how how did that happen?
1: The student has surpassed the master. No, I'm just kidding. There's I'm, there's no way that I'm making that claim. But listen, let me tell you, uh, I am a convert, and I am I'm strongly considering a deep dive on. Toho Godzilla on all of it. I found a thread that shows where they're streaming Pluto to uh, Pluto TV. Come through in the clutch, man. Pluto's got a lot of good stuff there, uh, but that's not my nerd commendation for right now. Uh, as of the time recording, I have not yet gotten to see Godzilla minus one. I cannot wait to see it. Um, but I'm I'm here to talk about an Apple TV product. I don't know like the the streaming rights of whatever like Toho, what they're licensing, this is still connected to the WB stuff, but it's streaming on Apple. Make it make sense. I don't care. It's a good show. And um, based on what the reactions I've seen of Godzilla Minus One is what Toho gets right, and and you could probably lend more credits to the, this than I can, Dave, is the, the human aspects of this. Like, yes, you have this huge kaiju, this monster running around destroying crap, and the allegory, of course, but the human elements have been lacking in the legendary um, era of stuff. But I think it's done really, really well here with Monarch Legacy of Monsters. You have these two siblings who are kind of looking for their father who disappeared um, without a trace. You have a lot of time jumping going on with the initial founding of the company of monarch, uh, Monarch and then how it kind of got taken over Um, You have a really interesting thing where you have Wyatt Russell playing a character and then you have his father, Kurt Russell, playing him in uh, the latter half of the later years of the show. So it's jumping back and forth from 2015, which is right after the G-Day event of Godzilla going to San Francisco and doing his thing. Um, But then you also have like, the post-war um, Pacific kind of being featured here. And and the cast is out of this world, like both Russells. i tell you what, Riot, Wyatt Russell, between um, this character and who he was as U.S. agent in Falcon and Winter Soldier, uh, that was not a perfect show, but he was really good at playing an asshole. I'll tell you that. Wyatt Russell knows how to do that. Um, maybe he learned it from his dad. I don't know, but... Um, the rest of the cast is is just really great there there's are a lot of folks that are new to me um uh Anna Sawai um uh Ren uh, Ren Watabe, uh and Mari Yamamoto just fantastic and then Kiersey Clemens um who she was in the flash blinkin you'll miss it uh she played Iris West but she's she's got a much larger role here and she's great in it but i'm telling you what it, it's like Equal Pirates, like, spy thriller as Kaiju, too. And, like, the CGI on this, they did not skimp. Apple did the darn thing because the monsters look great. Um, You have have Godzilla, like, straight-up Godzilla, too, showing up in this show. Uh, And it's really, really great. Um, So it's like, what if James Bond was involved with Godzilla? Like, it's just really, really fun, really suspenseful. Um, the only thing that's like, okay, is Kurt Russell's character is now 90 years old and he's not like Steve Rogers super soldier, but he's the fact that the ability to move around and be as active as he is, is 90, 90 years old is a little bit suspicious, but maybe there is some long-term exposure to radiation at work here. I don't know that is yet to be revealed, but this is a great time and it's really fun to a fun show to watch.
0: Yeah, I'm in. I mean, you said Godzilla shows up. So, uh, you know, when I saw that there was some kind of spinoff like this, that's going to be on TV, I thought it was like all human characters all the time. And the fact that they're getting the human characters right is encouraging because um, you and I agreed when we did our Godzilla versus Kong review that that was probably the weakest link, right, is that the human characters didn't quite gel. So if they can figure that part out on top of the monster action, it'd be really nice. So it's really cool that, uh, that the show actually has the monster action, but is also still taking the time to, to, you know, try to do something interesting with the human characters. So I'm definitely going to give this one a shot, Chris. This sounds great.
1: All right, Dave, you are here to follow up on last week with another one.
0: Yeah. You know what, uh, I- I almost feel like taking my last nerd commendation back after this. Um so as of recording, uh we just got the second of the three Doctor Who specials featuring the return of David Tennant. And I'm going to tell you right now whether you are caught up or not. Chris, please do yourself a favor. If you have a Disney Plus subscription, you need to log onto that sucker and you need to watch the second special called Wild Blue Yonder and I swear to god, Chris, you do not need to know much. You can enjoy this as a standalone science fiction story and it encapsulates the absolute best of weird Doctor Who while at the same time having actually really decent special effects for a change. This is this episode, I think, has reached like top three status since the relaunch in 2005 for me. Um, and I think this is like going to be one of the episodes that I, re- I recommend to people as like this is how weird and awesome Doctor Who can be. Wild Blue Yonder is one of my favorite episodes in years of this show. It just clicks on every level. It starts off with a little f- uh, f- you know, humorous interlude. Uh, basically, you have the situation where the TARDIS is malfunctioning and, and the doctor's trying to fix it and he has his companion Donna with him. They end up in a tree that drops a whole bunch of apples onto Isaac Newton. <laughs> they have a little conversation which ends up quite humorous. Um, And and then they get into the meat of the actual episode, which is that they crash into a spaceship that is completely devoid of any signs of life, that is on the very edge of an ever-expanding universe, so far out that there is no light, there are no stars, they see nothing. And yet, for some reason, they keep hearing noises, and there does seem to be a presence that is on board this spaceship. There's all sorts of mysteries that get dumped into you right as they arrive. The TARDIS has a mechanism uh, that actually makes it like remove itself from danger. So it actually strands the doctor and Donna accidentally there because it's, it gets out of Dodge to get away from the danger. So, you know, from the word go, there is something bad on this, on this spaceship. And, and there you go. You know, you have two characters bouncing off of each other alone on a spaceship with something deeply creepy going on and an underlying mystery of what happened to the people on the ship. And it just builds from there in this really weird, odd, creepy, and awesome story that just goes from 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 one great moment to another, anchored by absolutely stunning performances by Tennant and Tate. Like it's just, it is so quintessential, good, weird, big idea sci-fi. Who, it it just is. I, I cannot rave about it enough. Like I missed. Doctor Who so much after watching this episode. I was like, I cannot believe that I went for several years without really religiously following the show because this is what Doctor Who is at its very best. So Chris, I am telling you, whether you are caught up with the show or not, all you gotta do is tune in and watch this one hour show and you will be convinced that this can be an excellent show for you. It is so very good. So, you know, I know this airs you know, a few weeks later, you know, because we record ahead. But if you at this point have not watched the second special of Doctor Who, Wild Blue Yonder, you need to do so now. <laughs> all
1: right, I'll take you at your word. I mean, like that's that's some of the most vociferous praise you've ever given on something.
0: It really was that good. And you know me, I love weird science fiction, and this just hit every single nerve of things that I love. It was creepy and weird and out there and just perfect. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. If you like what you just heard, please find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Drop us a rating and review and subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find us on every podcasting platform imaginable and our very own website, nerdbyword.com.
1: And follow us on social media. We're on all platforms at nerdbyword. On select ones at that nerd Dave and that nerd, Chris, But as always, stay well and stay nerdy.
0: The nerdbyword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available.